Everybody, um, this is Thoughts and Prayers uh, podcast. I'm Q. I'm back here with a debuting or returning your uh, new sultry voice. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I. I liked the way I sounded on the last podcast. So <laughs> your I'm voice tired. is your voice sounds the same to me. Is it? Is it? You changed your voice. I'm just trying to be a little less uh, high energy and like a screaming faggot on the pod. So he's just he's just <laughs> doing a little, you know, sultry kind of. I'm doing. <laughs> I'm doing like a radio voice. A radio I voice. feel like you have an iconic gay voice, though. I mean, isn't that why people tune in? Yeah, but when, I, but when I get too excited, it's like, I feel like I'm like screaming and A is like talking normal. So I'm just trying to bring my, I kind of have a, I think I have a unique gay voice and that I have sort of a gay voice that also has a lot of vocal fry in it. So I think that's my, my brand. Oh, I, <laughs> I like your voice in any form. I don't mean to denigrate your new sultry persona. I did it on purpose because I thought you would think it was funny to immediately start uh, <laughs> doing that. Anyway, we're here with David, David Moulton. Hi. Um, I, um, yeah, he's been on the pod, I think, twice before, and he has a new article out. So we're going to discuss the article. And then he also read Aberration, um, the Wendy painting book. Oh, nice. Aberration in the Heartland of the Real. Right. So right. I and I was inspired, not to get too ahead of us, but I was inspired by A recommended that to Daniel when he was on the pod. And I, I read Oh that. nice. Okay. Yeah, so that, that was why I read it. So um yeah, so I am I am sticking my toes in the waters of <laughs> madness a little bit um but yeah, you're getting well, a little closer to some conspiracy theory uh well what i i mean i actually haven't read the book in full but q has read it and and my wife has read it and i kind of like she would discuss it with me mm-hmm. but um but what i think is kind of cool about it is that she doesn't really lay out her own argument per se right like she kind of talks about all these different versions of the story that each of which are sort of fact have a a basis in fact um but that tell different stories so yeah just kind of interesting do we want to start with aberration or do we want to start with the article because i think (laughs) what i was what i was saying before a came on was that you know, I read conspiracy theory stuff in a very like kind of female brained way in the sense that like, I find it interesting and intriguing. Um, I take some of it, I believe uh, wholeheartedly. Some of it I think of as more like metaphorical or like spiritually vibe based, interesting. Um, But A is really 
you know, like has like the PDFs and the like <laughs> files and stuff like that. So he's interested in <laughs> maybe really converting David. So I don't know. We could maybe start with I that. was I was very happy to see you uh talking about the Zapruder film, David, on the Right. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's well that was how Yeah, let's just, well let's just get into it. So yeah. <laughs> uh how did the Zapruder stuff come up? For me, um, for those who don't know, this is the video, the film that was recorded of um, by a, a, essentially just a bystander in the crowd at the exact moment when JFK was shot um, in mm-hmm. his car in in Dallas, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it basically. Uh, and I mean, if you just watch the film, it it pretty much debunks the. Uh, Warren Commission report the official narrative of JFK's death, which was that he was shot from behind. In the video, you can quite clearly see that he was shot from the front. Yeah, it's just it's just you can't see that video and think. I mean, it's just clearly that his his brains are getting smashed from the front, and then they go behind him. Yeah. Um, so the reason, well, okay, I'm just trying to think of is there a way to create some higher unity between the stuff I write about in the article and the conspiracy stuff, because they aren't (laughs) directly related, but maybe they are on some deeper level. They they are, because as you've already pointed out, like, you know, aberration is all about mind control and MK ultra and all of that stuff. And your article is essential in compact is essentially positing that the, you know, pharmaceutical industry is running kind of a, you know, whether it's like intentional or not, they are effectively running a mass experiment of um, mass medicalization of, you know, what they call mental illness. So I do think they're related personally. Yeah. I mean, well, and the reason I started reading about Kennedy was uh, just like, I'm not a huge RFK junior booster. I mean, at this point, I feel like I probably, will vote for him but more as like a protest like i don't really necessarily think he's going to save the day in any (laughs) serious way but just as this manifestation of distrust in um the institutions basically that have been captured by uh basically people poisoning us for money and reading uh interviews with him talking about how since the late 80s, there's been this explosion in uh, disabilities, basically, neurological and mental illness among children. And how, and it, he and I would probably differ a little bit on the causes. I just, I see it as um, like it was that era that pharma started sort of marketing diseases to people. And then that becomes self-fulfilling by making children like chemically dependent on uh, stimulants and SSRIs and whatnot. And so there has been this sort of takeover of the institutions of medicine by these um, basically companies poisoning us for profit. I mean, that's the worst way to say it. And then, of course, that connects back to his uncle being killed and he said he thought the cia was involved and so then i read about 
there's this book called Last Second in Dallas by Josiah Thomas. I read that just mm-hmm. made the case there had to be more than one shooter. Um, and so then, I mean, from there, it's like for me with conspiracies, there's always like the negative threshold question of whether the mainstream story was correct. Mm-hmm. And I think with the Kennedy case, I think you can show pretty conclusively that it wasn't. The Warren Commission isn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with like the Timothy McVeigh stuff, that seems pretty clear too. And that it really could not have been just a simple case of, well, they did a, a thorough, real investigation and arrived erroneously at the wrong conclusion right but then okay so then this is where we might disagree a little bit because there's this issue of cover-up versus like narrative management right and so (laughs) i i so for example like let's take COVID. so there's so much bullshit being put forward by Fauci and the CDC, like about masks that obviously couldn't work and seeing people stick with them. And I don't know, nefarious cover-up to me, it seems like humans are just these meaning-creating animals. And so we need a narrative and we have to stick to the narrative, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it obviously doesn't make sense. And so to me, there's a fine line between that and cover up. But well, but so just looking at the masks issue, though, mm-hmm. I mean, like there was a consensus, essentially like a, a scientific consensus prior to COVID that masks are not effective in preventing mm-hmm. the transmission of respiratory viruses mm-hmm. that and that's the famously there's a clip of Fauci saying that on CNN or something you know some news clip of him saying that you know oh it might stop a droplet but you know it really doesn't do right. anything and and that's why we're not recommending it then later he flips and then that and to me i interpret that as basically and just based on my experience of it like the masks to me were the linchpin of the whole pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you didn't have people required to wear masks anytime they leave their home, there wouldn't have been this sense of fear and that there was something, a th- invisible threat in the air that, you know, people would have just got, started getting used to going out and going about their business and seeing faces. And, you know, it wouldn't have maintained this fear that enabled the whole, the, the continued lockdowns and then later the vaccines that, um, you know, trying to get everyone to take them and all that stuff. So that's what I would say. It created the, the permanent state of emergency. Yes. For sure. That everyone, yeah, that, that the human face itself became sort of grotesque now, had to be covered. Um, and so, right, assuming that everyone was sick, for sure. But then, I don't know, I think that sort of becomes self-fulfilling because then, like, that's embedded in people's minds and then people want that and can't imagine a way without it. I mean, one thing Daniel said on your podcast that resonated with me was that conspiracy theories tend to exaggerate the extent to which there's like the two layers and the conspirators and then the malleable masses. 
Whereas he was saying, I think I agree with him here, that there's more of a give and take. And so like with COVID, with masks, it was like people adopted the masks and then it became, and then the pressure came as much from below as from above, right? So there was actual a popular constituency for mm-hmm. this. Well, and that's, it's, it's such an interesting thing. The masks are such an interesting thing. And to me, I, I do agree that they're all in, and this is with any type of propaganda, like there does, there is a give and take between like the propagandist and the propagandized. Like you can't just, you know, if, if they started saying tomorrow, like the sky is orange, you know, um, you couldn't just convince everybody of that, right? Like there, it, 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 it's not that simple. Um, but with the masks, I think you almost see the way they handled it with, it, because at first when people heard there was a, a pandemic, right? Like, oh, this mysterious new virus. I think for a lot of people, especially maybe um, almost like the more conservative or like skeptical of the government prepper types, had an initial reaction to wear a mask and to buy, you know, to stock up on masks like the paranoid people. Right. And then Fauci's initial move there was to say, Oh no, masks don't do anything. Don't wear them. Mm -hmm. And then in that moment, almost sort of that's functions as the government um, taking control over the pandemic in a sense, like, um, telling people to ignore their initial inclination of, you know, how to um, manage their own safety or whatever. And then he flips and, of course, says, nope, actually put on the mask, you know. I just remember, so well into March, so even after the first stay-at-home orders came in San Francisco, there were still people saying, like, don't wear a mask, don't be silly. And there was mm-hmm. even there was something like they came out in the Washington Post, I think, in early April 2020 about how useless masks were. So it was still like the smart people thing mm-hmm. to think. And so yep. for me, what masks demonstrated more than anything, it was just how the way science just functions as this black box, right? Like you believe in science, but you don't understand it. So that mm-hmm. like and that becomes the religion of the masses, certainly like the blue city progressive voting masses. And um, I mean, and I'm not, I mean, I'm agnostic, so I'm not a particular uh, believer in any religion. I was raised Catholic. But uh, but it does go to show that when you uh, enthrone science, that you just end up following these arbitrary dictates that can change day to day. Like it's crazy because you don't under. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And like, what I was going to say was, is that, I mean, your article made me think about this too. It's like Mm -hmm. the whole point of science and scientific development is that it changes. So it kind of allows them. And by them, I mean sort of the government or whatever to uh, be able to change their mind kind of at a a whim, you know what I mean? Because if you want to find a scientific study to say X, Y, and Z, you can find it. We could all go right now and find studies that say masks don't work. And we could find studies that say that masks work easily. We could each probably find 10. Especially when it's basically the government essentially that's funding all the studies. Right. But my point is, is like the, by the very nature of the way they discuss science as this ever changing thing 
it allows them so much leeway. Mm-hmm. Right. And the expertise of scientists is so um, held up that that we think, uh, well, they, they, they're doing these complicated uh, calculations that just discerning what evidence is. And we just sort of, they went to school for this. We just have to believe it or follow it. And this is, I don't know if this is trying to make a, an elegant transition. I'm not sure this may or may not be it, hmm. but this is actually how, what sort of inspired me to write about lobotomies is that, so as complicated, as sort of ethically complicated as the field of science is right now, we do still have certain ethical North stars. And I think the lobotomy is sort of that in that pretty much everyone agrees this was a major scandal, right? So as much ambiguity as there is, as much kazooistry, pedantry, back and forth, on and on, endless analysis of data points and whatnot, we can at least say, well, this was wrong. So how do we know that the lobotomy was wrong. So that, that was sort of what inspired the idea uh, of, of the essay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the essay is, um, I want to get the title right. It's, um, hold on, compact. I should have it pulled up. It's all lobotomy. good. Um, lobotomy David, really professional <laughs> podcast. <here. laughs> um, but yeah, so the article is a, it actually t- discusses a um, story that like I have always found really interesting. Um, and it's the story of Rose. Um, Rosemary Kennedy. Yeah. Rosemary Kennedy. Yeah. Hold on. I've, what do you know the name of your article? Yeah. yeah. So uh, postmodern lobotomy blues. Postmodern, uh, lobotomy. postmodern lobotomy blues and compact mag. So yeah. um, I've always found the, the uh, story of Rosemary Kennedy really fascinating because, you know, I like, the Kennedys. And um, I think everyone sort of finds them interesting and glamorous and weird, like American royalty sort of sit-ins sure. or whatever. Um, but yeah, basically, if you, if you don't know, David's article discusses how, you know, Joe Kennedy, the patriarch of the family, actually got Rosemary Kennedy a lobotomy. And mm-hmm. um, the reasons for the lobotomy, you know, it kind of shows how how wide reaching the reasons to give someone a lobotomy were at the time, because her kind of problems, quote unquote, were that she was hanging out with boys and didn't really like school and like, (laughs) you know, she was, she was, you know, I mean, today she would have a very, uh, I'm sure if she were raised, like born around the time we were, she would have been on like ADHD and, antidepressant medication yeah but she was basically just sort of like an average like quote-unquote problem child and it like wasn't it wasn't anything like that serious and like they did think maybe she had some you know learning disabilities or her iq wasn't as high as some of her siblings but for all intensive purposes like she was pretty she could have probably lived i mean she definitely could have lived a very normal life if, if if this hadn't happened to her and the lobotomy uh, made her for the rest of her life completely unable to essentially talk or take care of herself. She lived mm. in institutions until she died at 2005. Um, Joe Kennedy, incontinent, right? Like incontinent, yeah. Like she was mm. you know, basically reduced to the state of like a toddler. 
And um, they described it as a botched lobotomy. But as you point out in the article, I think really smartly, the the range of effects of lobotomies was huge. And ultimately, the lobotomy um, did achieve what Joe Kennedy wanted, which was kind of keeping her docile and out of the way. And, you know. Right. And this is, I mean, this is, in the reading I did for this, there's some things... uh, I didn't really have space to talk about, but there were cases, this is really interesting, of people who did sort of consent to their lobotomy beforehand, um, particularly uh, women would like uh, often going through PMS or um, PMS. Yeah, just like uh, female problems, Uh, often with the pressure of their husband, but there were cases of women actually just consenting themselves, presenting themselves for a lobotomy. Um, So there were cases of people wanting a lobotomy for themselves. And there were even some cases, I mean, there were ranges of effects. So what happened to Rosemary Kennedy was normal, but there were people who did retain uh, function. They could still speak and whatnot, and even spoke positively um, of it afterwards. So. Yeah, there were lobotomy survivors, like whatever word you want to use. There were there were people who'd had lobotomies that lived, I think, even until relatively recently. So, what happened to her wasn't the only outcome, although mm-hmm. it was a co- although it was a common outcome. Mm-hmm. And there were also people who just died from lobotomies. Fair, right. Yeah, like five to ten percent. So, uh, right. So she was sort of in the middle range of what you would expect. But yeah, it was the idea you could make people more docile. Um, they were often performed in the late forties. There were many, uh, America still had insane asylums and they were like the idea you could open the doors to lobotomists who would make the patients more manageable, um, and so on. So there was, and there were some people who had this hope that they could, you would take away their personality and then you could build it back up in the way you wanted. um, which often, like with Rosemary Kennedy, often that didn't work at all. It just reduced them to this infantile state for the rest of life. You can't really... So it was really good at just sort of breaking down the person, but not necessarily at building them back up into anything else. So as as a form of mind control, I'm not sure it really worked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it was like, um, like, yeah, anyway, sorry. So you, so to keep, to keep giving a, just a quick overview of the article. So our mm-hmm. readers, so not readers, our listeners know where we're going. David then compares the lobotomy to like kind of the, um, you know, uh, emergence of psychiatric drugs uh, mm. starting starting in the 50s moving up to SSRIs in the 80s um, and how there's you know really no evidence that they do a whole lot you do acknowledge in the article that obviously psychiatric drugs are not as damaging as lobotomies or as you know people can get off them and things sure. like that but um, then you end the article just very quickly, and then I'll let you talk. A we, that you end the article with, com- but there is something comparable today, which is uh, you know sex reassignment surgery and puberty blockers, particularly with um, children, that is irreversible. So there is there is some modern equivalent, um, and we don't you know necessarily know that SSRIs 
you know, some people do end up staying on them for life. We don't always know the long-term effects of things like this. So anyway, that's kind of those, that's, I would say those are the three hits the article makes. Lobotomies, the emergence of psychiatric drugs, and then moves to um, childhood sex reassignment surgery. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I was going to say is um, related to that is sort of almost like, um, something you maybe don't explicitly lay out, but is kind of um, connects the the dots here to all those different topics is like um, the the role that science plays in this like myth of progress that kind mm. of legitimizes everything. Like how you were saying, like um, lobotomy seems so appalling right now. You know, like oh my god, mm-hmm. I can't believe we did that. And even at the time, you know, there were people who felt that way, but it was like, well, how can you say it's it's barbaric? I mean, you got to trust the science, trust the experts, right? Like this is the cutting edge, blah, blah, blah. And um, and now it's sort of almost legitimized. Instead of attributing it to a problem with science and that whole trust the experts, trust the science kind of framework, it's looked at, wow, I mean, um, we've made so much progress since then, right? Like we now we can see it for what it was because we have evolved beyond that kind of and not not stopping to consider that perhaps some things that we accept as um, valid uh, treatments or procedures now um, really kind of aren't maybe not that so different from that, you know? Right. And so, so... Um, by the way, I really like the title, but I can't claim credit for it. Uh, Jeff, <laughs> the uh, editor at Compact, picked it. Um, but the idea of the the postmodern, so I'm trying to use these terms in a fairly uh, precise way. Um, I know postmodern is sometimes a term people throw around without necessarily meaning anything in particular. But the idea of postmodern here is so contrasting. So whenever you tell like a narrative of progress, there's always like the dark ages which in this case would be the lobotomy, Um, like this horrific practice of dicing up people's brains. And then so you get the modernist period, which I try and portray uh, the first psych meds in that sense, right? And so psych meds following World War II, there was this idea that we were making amazing progress, which we were in some areas. Like you look back at penicillin, um, as much as I hate pharma. I have a hard time being against penicillin, right? It seems like it's great, right? So uh, all these soldiers who would have died of horrible um, infection, wound infections during the war were able to survive because of penicillin. And then in the post-war era, there was this hope that chemistry would make similar gains in other areas of medicine, right? And so that's where we get Thorazine, which was the first antipsychotic. And it was seen by a lot of people Um, including some lobotomists who said, oh, well, we don't need to keep cutting up people's brains now. We have drugs for this, et cetera. Um, But one thing I want to bring home, I guess, want to emphasize is that when it first came out, antipsychotics were noted for achieving similar effects through chemical means, right? And so the idea that they would cure a mental illness is not really, uh, it's not accurate at all. I mean, they would sedate mental 
patients, you know, mm-hmm. people in psychiatric wards, you could give them this pill, but it was more like, oh, it achieves the same ends through chemical means rather than surgical ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that progress? I mean, maybe. I think it's still better than irreversibly uh, damaging someone, mm-hmm. but... There actually, there actually isn't even a hundred. There is actually still some uh, brain surgery like things that we do even today, like electric convulsive shock therapy, and there. I think there are even some like penetrative type things. So the the stuff isn't completely gone. Even it's just only used in what they consider like the most extreme cases. Yeah, well, and it's not, well, like the guy, Walter Freeman, I talk about was this, uh, like he, he uh, actually perfected this, it was called the transorbital lobotomy, which is not what Rosemary Kennedy got, but this, you would just stick an ice pick up someone's eye socket. Um, and it was like a quick, easy lobotomy. So stuff like that is not uh, done anymore. But yeah, there is, there are still some uh, forms of brain surgery. Yeah, I was... Um... Yeah, keep going. Oh, yeah. So they, I, the one I was thinking of is because I've been diagnosed before with obsessive compulsive disorder is they have something called deep brain stimulation for OCD. Is that um, actually creating holes in the brain, though? Or is that... Is like- um, yeah, so what they call it... I'm going to just read it to you guys. It's called an anterior singular singulatomy. This is a brain surgery that involves drilling through the skull and using a heated probe to burn an area within a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, the part of the brain highlighted on the right. About 50% of those who, do, who did not respond to behavior therapy, therapy or medicines for OCD get some benefit from the procedure. And that's something they still perform today, which is kind Have of crazy. Have you had it? Have you had no, it? No, of course not. And it's, it's <laughs> crazy to think that just the description of the surgery drilling a hole into your brain and burning a part of your brain and it only has a 50% success rate. I mean, even that in and of itself is insane. So there are, I mean, I think these are extremely rare. I think these are like, I think these are like people who are essentially like whatever their issues are, they're like not there, they're unable to function, you know, in any sort of regular way in society, but it's not even like it's completely gone. Um, well, another, then, yeah, how do they measure benefit? Okay. I mean, that's that's a difficult thing with psychiatry. Well, that's, I mean, that's what your article really gets at, which I think is interesting, is like all of, you know, all, all of these medications and stuff. It's like, what does it mean if they're working? Um, mm-hmm. You can't really measure, like, levels of depression the way you can, like, take a blood test for a disease like hepatitis or something, like... You just can't, you can't do that. So it's like all, you know, what, what, what quote unquote works and what quote unquote doesn't is, I guess, essentially, I mean, I would imagine it's mostly self-reported outcomes, you know, which can be really subjective. Well, or that, or it could be how manageable is the patient. To, I mean, yeah, especially... like a clinician's assessment. <laughs> right, right. Like if you're talking about people who are literally institutionalized, it could definitely be that. So, and a lot of psych, you know, I've read a lot of psychiatric studies. It's funny because many of them, and people don't realize this, but like, and this is true for like COVID studies. This is true for any 
disease study you read, a lot of them are just like review, like mass reviews of other studies. So they're not even actually doing anything new. They're just sort of like putting like tons of studies from around the world through like a computer and assessing like what the outcomes are. But like, you know, who knows if this random study from India is... Right. And has you can game those too because you set all the parameters of how you're because all the studies will be done with in different ways and use different measurements. So you have to find some way to synthesize them. And, you know, um, so, yeah, it's well, that's so meta analysis. Right. That's or meta research is mm-hmm. research about research. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a guy, uh, I believe he is a psychiatrist who I whose work I cite here, um, Irving Kirsch, who wrote, uh, let me see, just want to check. Okay, he's an American psychologist and academic. I'm not sure if he has an MD, but he did uh, the most exhaustive meta-analysis of um, SSRIs and found they work no better than placebo, right? And so there's something called enhanced placebo, which is, if in a, a randomized control trial, one arm is can tell that they're not in the control, that they're taking a uh, chemically active substance, they'll start to get side effects. And so that's called an enhanced placebo because they know they're on some kind of drug, right? And so he found like the difference between just regular placebo is very small, but then the difference with enhanced placebo is, is nothing. So SSRIs work no better than placebo at what they're trying to do. But it's for me. So I, I point to the, the approval of Prozac in 1987 as sort of a key moment in this story because it made psychiatry into sort of this mass thing. So it's no longer like the, the people on the fringes, right. Who uh, are crazy or whatever. Psychiatry became a form of medicine for everyone with Prozac, right? So millions of people end up on Prozac. But the science behind it is just so non-existent. So what does that say about us that we all signed up for this thing that doesn't really... Well, it's like, I mean, it's like Daniel a couple episodes ago was saying about COVID. I mean, what it says about us is that, you know, you can go with like some sort of like mass psyop thing, or you could just say that in the similar way that COVID and all of that stuff was like kind of some symptomatic of like a deep cultural problem. The mass adoption of, of Prozac in the late eighties was a symptom of a deep cultural problem. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, that's, you know, you can kind of point to these mass adoptions of like these interventions as kind of something like that, I would say, you know, and what do you think the deep cultural problem is? If you had oh, to? I mean, I, don't, I could I could speculate. I mean, <laughs> I'm coming from someone who's like read Elizabeth Wurzel's like Prozac Nation, but I don't know. I mean, the deep cultural problem could just be that uh, society began, American society began to maybe disintegrate in a way that it wasn't hadn't happened before, and there was more. There was people were doing. Um, less things that felt real there was more like desk jobs and sitting in front of computers and like staring at technology and people were coming becoming alienated from their bodies and 
you know, even middle-class women by the late eighties weren't staying at home and taking care of their kids. And I could kind of see all of these like social factors kind of resulting in like a kind of alienation, uh, you know, sort of feeling that people began to describe as depression and then they wanted a fix to that. Also, by that point, the use of recreational drugs had skyrocketed. Uh, the sexual revolution had happened. So Both there was CIA involved with those things as well. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so like, so yeah, so the, the, the divorce rate had skyrocketed. Um, you know, I just cities were worse. The crack epidemic was, <laughs> was roiling another. CIA, okay. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was sadder and more pathetic to live in big cities. So I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I can point to like anything and just kind of, you know, I'm just gesturing at various things and I, I don't, I don't believe you, you know, the U S was some utopia in the fifties or whatever, but Right. There was something that happened post-industrial revolution that I think really, and I, you know, and I, I can't go back to before the industrial revolution and ask people if they were depressed, but, you know, to be, I was talking with Melly on her podcast about Down and Out in London and Paris by George Orwell. And he writes about how his least depressed times were when he was the poorest mm-hmm. because he just had to look like to the next moment kind of like everything was like what what will i eat next how will i get money there wasn't like this time to sit around and uh think about like his feelings and i think post industrial revolution increasingly over time now exacerbated to the point where it's almost everybody in the US has kind of a lot of time to sit around and think about how they feel about things um anyway that's my little spiel on maybe what the what the problem is (laughs) yeah no i think that's i think that's right and i think i mean another way to frame it might be yeah post-industrial so we're living in a post-industrial landscape right de-industrialized landscape and so the locus of the economy switches from manufacturing to consuming right and so i think the mass prescription of psych meds makes total sense in a consumer economy, right? So we're all consumers uh, defined by what we are consuming. That's what drives the economy. And that's what drives sort of our map of meaning in the world as well. And so in that sort of space, the whole concept of the self changes in a way And so it's no longer we are a person in the world making meaning through our projects and our relations. It's like the self becomes atomized and can be treated, which itself, I think, is the disease. So psychiatry is itself, in my opinion, the disease for which it purports to be the cure, right? Because it it alienates the individual, atomizes the individual, um, says you are nothing but this... uh, combination of chemicals that we can fix, right? And of course, if you see yourself as nothing but a combination of chemicals, that's kind of a depressing thought, right? And so you have to take pills to cure yourself of that thought, but you can't because <laughs> the pills actually reinforce the whole idea, the whole understanding. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's like, it's it's like the problems, like, you know, I I would guarantee if they did a study of like, daily exercise versus SSRIs, what's going to have a better effect on people's mood, daily exercise is going to like win 
by a million miles, (laughs) you know what I mean? Or Mm -hmm. even something simpler than that, like spending an hour a day with your phone off and your computer off and your TV off and like talking to whoever your personal loved ones are, you know, I bet if, if these things I guarantee would be, would work better than SSRIs, but you can't sell those things, you know? Um, so. And best of all would be to like, in my opinion, best of all would be to get rid of this idea that we should quantify everything in life, like the tyranny of the quantifiable, that everything can be reduced to a rating on a scale. I think, mm-hmm. I think, right. yeah, I'm mean, happier you today, eight out of 10 or whatever. You know? Totally. I mean, the biggest thing that's helped me with like my own, I guess, I don't, I don't even want to use the word mental health, but I, I, I can't think of a better word to use, but like improving my overall mood is just to accept that like negative emotions are going to be part of like everyday life and that that's normal and like not a bad thing that has to immediately be fixed. So if you're anxious for an hour, like Mm -hmm. it's okay. Like that's a normal, (laughs) that's a normal thing your body is doing. And if you try to fix it, sometimes you make it often, I think you make it worse. You know, I think that's kind of what all of this stuff kind of points at is that, People just can't, I mean, I know he's like canceled now, but I remember remember Louis C.K. had this joke about how he like pulled over on the side of the road and was so overwhelmed with like sadness. He like didn't know what to do. And he was like, didn't want to cry. And then he's like, why why are we like that? He's like, it's okay. Just like, just cry for a couple minutes. Like it's not, you know what I mean? Like we're so, we're so scared of like, a painful emotion. And I think that's, and I, and I think that these medicines promise that you can, um, you know, you can kind of exist in some sort of neutral state, which some of them do achieve. I mean, like SSRIs might not achieve that, but things like benzos and things like that can definitely sure. like numb you out. Um, or I mean, opioids, I think the rise opioid, of opioids, yeah, opioids rise shortly after this. That was what I was going to say is in your article, you you kind of you pretty, I mean, directly and it's probably a slight oversimplification, but you you tie it very directly, the rise of opiates as a response to um, lobotomy, right? So you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, so, so there was another, um, I wrote another a compact article uh, a couple months ago now about about the about um, oxycotton and and the marketing campaign for that and that came out in ninety six um, and I think that is related in that what I would call like the postmodern turn in pharmaceutical marketing in that companies increasingly starting in the late eighties turned to marketing diseases sort of convincing people that everyday aspects of life are pathological conditions for which they have the cure. And so um, uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical does this with chronic pain, like the pain scale, ranking your pain on a scale. Uh, The idea that before this, opioids were generally just used for um, people in hospice, remedial care, people dying of cancer. And now it was like everyday non-malignant pain um and obviously in there i mean the effects there are are very dramatic right i mean the opioid crisis now has been the biggest 
uh, drug crisis in American history, hundreds of thousands of dead uh, since the late 90s. So I think we see uh, the issue of removing all pain through a quick chemical fix does not does not work mm-hmm. out. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that, that's another perfect example of what I was saying. Cause like, I've, I've known people in pain management, like nurses and things like that. And it's like, you know, the new paradigm is now basically what, um, you know, like makes sense is that your body is going to hurt sometimes. Mm-hmm. And the older you get, the more it's going to hurt and teaching people to sort of, you know, be accepting of that reality. And also like, do things like exercise <laughs> to right. make their, make their bodies hurt less, you know? And it's just, it's interesting that, yeah, like, anyway, I just wanted to point that out. It's very similar to the psychiatric stuff, you know? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's targeting a different population, but it's very, I think it is very similar. I mean- well, lots, of, lots of people are on all these things. Is like right, we have right, right. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's tons of people on- Pain med- I mean, I have friends who are on like, you know, SSRIs, they have Adderall for ADHD, they might take some sort of other medication for some sort of thyroid problem, they might, you know, like, I, I know, I know many people on just kind of like multiple pharmaceuticals. Um, are they happy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, you know, and I think that that's another thing I wanted to say, and yeah. sorry if I'm rambling, you guys can cut me off, but like, is happy is happiness a worthy goal? <laughs> like I was thinking about that. Like the right. question of the question of Daniel's episode was like, is saving lives the ultimate good? Right? Like that was well, sort of like happiness you can define different ways. I mean, does happiness just mean pleasure and absence of pain, or does it mean sort of fulfillment of meaning? Well, I don't I mean world? I don't I mean, it, it could mean either, but I don't know. I mean, I guess the way I think of happiness or the way most people seem to talk about it is a sort of like general contentment with life. That's how I feel like when people say, is is he happy or is she happy? That's kind of what they're referencing, some sort of general kind of vague notion of contentment. But like life is hard and anyone who has a long life is going to experience a lot of painful things in it like you're going your parents are gonna die like you're going Mm. to maybe have injuries like people you love are gonna die like you know like it's just like kind of built into the structure so this idea that there should be some way for us to be like kind of like universally contented through long periods of time is just not the way that I think like life works at all well I think it opens the door to us being like sort of these uh superfluous people who are just managed by um pharmaceuticals and the medical right and it like if let's say if my parent dies and i'm like super sad about it like you know the doctor can prescribe me some sort of whatever and i can feel less sad about it but is that good like maybe i should feel the sadness (laughs) like you know what i mean like maybe, maybe that's part of like you know that's part of getting through something hard is feeling hard things you know well, and I kind of, I kind of here want to introduce gender, not to be all uh, boys versus girls, but uh, so we were talking about the way sort of divorce rate. You mentioned that, Hugh. right? And so I do think you see sort of a feminization of the public sphere happening uh, in the '70s and '80s, and I do think that 
goes along with the medicalization of childhood in certain ways in that growing up, like the idea that a child's pain can just be taken away by a drug. I feel like that is very much something that like maternal love is going to uh, fall for. It, 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 at times, I think the medicalization of childhood almost functions as a corruption of maternal love, right? Because but I would argue, I mean, I hear what you're saying and I, I know you're, I've talked to you a lot now. So I, I, know, I definitely I, agree with that. I, I agree with you and I know your stance on the way that, you know, women can be like sinister, but I also would argue that like, it's a corruption of maternal love brought on maybe by the feminization of society or partially by the feminization of society in the absence of fathers, but also just the fact that, you know, single moms or women who are working outside of the house have a lot less time to manage their kids. And if they're getting calls from the school every day with bullshit issues and they think like, and they think like, Oh, there's something I can do to stop getting these fucking calls. Like, I also I think it's like the pressures can come from femininity itself, and also there can be like sort of an outside because in divorce most of the time. Well, you said when, calls coming from the schools. Who are the teachers? It's an overwhelmingly female profession, no? Sure. Yeah. True. So, I, I'm not. Say, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying there could be these like I, I understand it, it can be coming from within, but it can also. Well, be, and I I don't even view it necessarily as like a women are sinister thing it's it's uh, it's predatory the way it's taking advantage of um of maternal love i, I definitely see and i was thinking about this I, the reason i i kind of chimed in about that is i was literally just thinking about this with um in you know there's been a, a little propaganda push recently around this rsv va- this new pfizer rsv vaccine mm. that you give to pregnant women to pr- to give immunity to the unborn child and wow. um yeah okay. and so i was just like wow this is just beyond the pale you know they're because mothers especially when they're pregnant and they're hormonal and everything you just they want to have the best life for their child and do what anything that it takes to make sure that they're healthy and blah, blah, blah. And it's just such an exploitation of that urge that Mm -hmm. they're pushing Mm -hmm. this new thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Also, I think it's like more painful. I I do actually believe this, like generally it's more painful and more difficult for women to see their children in like pain or suffering than it is for men, at least just from like anecdotal observations. I don't know. Oh, totally. Well, I mean, mothers, well, there's only, only one of the three of us actually has children. So chime in if, if anything I say is totally off here, but uh, mothers do have the experience, right. Of like holding their child and making all the pain go away when they're little. Right. And so what if, these pharmaceuticals promise as the kids grow and their their sources of pain become much more complex, right? What if mm-hmm. there's still a pain? There's a pill that allows you to do that. I mean, that's such a that's such a temptation. And I say it's a corruption because I don't want to say that it's completely sinister. I mean, I think it's, you know, the corruption at the best is the worst. I think maternal love is the most powerful force um, in the world, but that's why it's corruption can be so so bad um i think that's 
it's easy to exploit it is I think what we're saying. It's a very, it's an easy yeah, thing to exploit. And if you, and if you tell, you know, I mean, if you tell them, a, a mother or a father i mean like i i have three siblings who are currently in school one of whom i i think is on some sort of adhd medication and you know it was like very upsetting for like my parents to go in and you're sitting in this room and there's a room full of teachers mostly women probably david <laughs> and you know they're saying that like your kid is falling behind and right. they're, ha- they're having social issues and you know, I think that's like an extremely painful thing for any parent to hear. And if they think, and you know, and then often schools will recommend, you know, we, we have a psychologist like on site who can make a, you know, who can make a referral and, you know, it's all sort of, it's all sort of set up in that way. Yeah. And, And the problem is, is that school, particularly for boys is not set up to really meet their needs very well. I don't sure, think. Sure, because, sure, sure. You know, yeah. like it is, and for girls too, in different ways, but like, you know, the structure of school is kind of weird for a child. Like they have to sit still for like six hours and, <laughs> you know. Passively like, absorb knowledge, basically. Passively like, absorb so knowledge. knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, and they they're they're trying so hard because I don't think like all teachers are like bad people. Like they are trying so hard to like incorporate movement and incorporate like, you know, different like ways to like do manipulatives and like use your hands in order to like, you know, they're trying to make it less awful at least in certain areas, but you know, by the, by its very nature school is kind of weird. Like <laughs> to sure, think that that's sure. think that that's the best way that that you know for kids to spend their time but you know and then of course if you're really rich this is like way off topic but just if you're really rich you can send your kid to some like nature school and they can be like trapezing through the forest or whatever but that costs a lot of money anyway (laughs) my point is is the medications the medications keep kids compliant and sitting there and you know doing it and that's um i would point out that this actually was my most feminist thing I've written, right? Because it actually does open with sort of a denunciation of the patriarch, right? So we see Joseph Kennedy um, Sr. hacking up his daughter's brains, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a sense in which, you know, the lobotomy, as it was originally practiced, was this very... um, patriarchal practice in the sense of the man in control, anyone, he'll literally just chop you up, right? Unperson you if you disagree, uh, put you into the shadows, right? And so I try to open with this display of patriarchal power and then go through the motions of how it comes out on the other side. And that's why I end with... um, the trans, the mother of the trans child, right, Jeanette Jennings, in this case, and the ways in which, as different, sort of the outward trappings of how Jeanette Jennings treats her child is the extreme opposite of Joseph Kennedy, as far as like doing it for social approval out in public. It's all about fulfilling the child's needs. So it's through this very uh, feminized. Um, matriarchal uh discourse but the result is kind of the same 
right? I mean, yeah, and it's like, and, and you're right. It is. It is such an inversion of what was happening in Joe Kennedy's time because now it's like you know to be a good father meant to control your family, right? right. Like mm-hmm. that's what a good father did. He controlled his family. And now in the feminized version, to be a good mother is to go to like at any lengths you can <laughs> to make your child happy up to and including, you know, this like, you know, transing them or whatever. And it's like, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it is an inversion of that, you know, and I don't think, I don't, I don't think one is better than the other. I, I don't think Joe Kennedy was right to lobotomize his daughter. <laughs> and I don't think whatever her name is, Jennings was, is right to do what has clearly been a horrific uh, yeah. mistake to anyone who's mm-hmm. even a casual observer can see it was a horrific mistake. Well, I, right, well, right, I think right. that's right. It's like, you know, the, the constant is the kind of dictatorship of the science or whatever that just takes on these different justifications. Right. So there's like a different, that's the thing. I mean, that's what's so confusing in some ways about today is you can say, well, how could you possibly claim trans people or lgbtq people are oppressed when there's so much there's like this state religion um devoted to like kissing the ass of you know the trans child or whatever um but at the same time beneath the ideological justification it's like wait we're still carrying out horrific medical experiments on problem children so what? So the ideological justifications have changed completely, have gone become inside out. But in some ways, beneath that, the the material surface reality seems unchanged. And that kind of reminds me of uh, something I liked about your piece, where you alluded to the origins of um, opioid pharmaceuticals where the patriarch of the Sackler family who founded Purdue Pharmaceuticals um, saw the horrors of lobotomy and then um, kind of said introduced opiates as as a way to a a more humane kind alternative that eventually morphed into its own so yeah I think well, there's a couple things there. I mean, the, the interesting thing to me about opioids now is that the Sackler family has been thoroughly disgraced, right? Like, there's no one across the political aisle, Democrats and Republicans, like, they were hauled before Congress and everyone told them how horrible they were. And rightly so. So there is an aspect in which when these scandals come to light, there is going to be a scapegoat, right? Who who takes the blame. But the underlying logic of it all is so vast that it's it's hard to dissent from at all. You know, so so the Sacklers, I'm not saying I feel bad for them in any way, but they did necessarily become the scapegoat for something that was much bigger than them. So I don't know how we deal with that. How do we reverse course on any of those i'm not sure i mean we don't sorry to sorry to be the black pill but like we don't people want to live long and they think that you know medicine is going to do that for them and the truth you know like i i i saw the new york crimes the new york crimes 
um, did, did there like did this article about doctors, oncologists who are refusing um, cancer care after the age of 75 because they're like, it's just, it's just not worth it anymore. Like it doesn't extend your life very much, but you know, that's, that was followed up a few days later by an article about how cancer is going to become a manageable disease in the next 10 years. And, you know, you're going to, you're going to live with cancer for 10 or 15 years longer, as long as you take these special pills. And like, you know what I mean? Like, it's always, it's just like, you know, when the truth is, is like, yeah, it just, people can't accept their own fate, which is ultimately like, not really movable by very many things you do. And I mean, obviously there's things, I mean, if you're a heroin addict, if you smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, like there are things you can do, I think that will legitimately shorten your life. But I also, I also think that generally speaking, there's not a lot you can do to lengthen your life outside of like attempt to live as healthily as you possibly can. But I think most, most of this is genetic likely is my my personal opinion, my personal guess. <laughs> right. Well, and then you have the whole issue of, okay, so you're living longer, but what is the actual quality of your life? And, you know, isn't that more important? Like, can you get up out of your bed and enjoy your life? And it's, and they're not, it's funny because they're not always right. Like I have a friend right now who is, it's, you know, very sad situation. She was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they told her four months to live and it's been seven months now. Okay. Um, and there's, there's been no growth of the tumor and she, she decided to not do any chemo because they told her, you know, four months to live without chemo, maybe two years to live with chemo. And she was like, I don't want my final two years to just be, you know, horrific. Um, and and now she's leaving out the fact that the chemo itself can kill and kill her right and she took that into account and now you know it's she's seven months in she's had no major changes no major side effects the tumor isn't growing and i'm kind of like wondering i mean she will die from this it's 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 inevitable but i'm kind of like what if she gets two years she didn't do the chemo they were just wrong (laughs) you know how old is she about she's 51 you know Um, so I don't know. I'm just kind of like, I'm just kind of like, it's interesting to me to have someone, you know, that I know, uh, pretty well going through that right now and to see that like, they didn't go with like the, you know, kind of immediate, like recommendation and faced their own possible death in four short months. And it's, you know, at this point, it's not, doesn't look like it's going to be, uh, anything near what they predicted, you know? So I had, I, don't... I, had, I, had a, my, I had a grandparent whose death was very, very prolonged and painful. And then in cases like that, like the medicine is just there to prolong the dying, you know? So to sort of make it more excruciating. So, so what is, what is the point of that? Right. Uh, yeah. And so then, I mean, I think that's the worst case scenario for medicine. What if it just becomes like a substitute for health, right? It's like this disabling thing that takes away your health, actually. Health defined as your sort of autonomous ability to deal with the world, to be in the world. Um, medicine can actually 
take that from you and then make you dependent, right? So it's disabling rather than um, giving you help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should we do, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, want, if, if you all are down, let's shift gears. And I'm so curious to get David's thoughts on aberration. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, let's get into that. So, all right, so aberration in the heartland of the real. Uh, well, the, the title struck me right away. It's a fascinating title, maybe a little over the top, but then I realized it was a... Um, Quote from the DeLillo novel, right? Libra. About the JFK assassination. Right, 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 right. So, so it's all coming together. So Timothy McVeigh uh, was this, I mean, he was a veteran, Gulf War veteran, who I remember, I'm a little bit older. Do you guys remember the Oklahoma City bombing? I just, I remember... Yeah, I remember. I mean, I'm a little younger, or I'm a little older than A, but younger than you. And I, I do actually remember like it being discussed and stuff like that. I do remember it being on the news, it very, very vaguely, you know. And I don't, I actually don't know that I remember the day of, of it, but I remember leading up to his execution when he was executed in 2001. I guess it was right before September 11th, which I definitely remember, of course. Um, so the thing is, and this is, it sounds like he was definitely part of a broader network. And that's not even, that part is not even controversial. Like I, I looked into this more, pretty much everyone accepts the federal government decided to just prosecute this one guy, right? And there was, there was a couple accessory cases, but still the idea was he was this one guy. Um, and let all these other leads go, right? And so then the question is, well, why did they not pursue everything else, right? And this gets... I Well, well and not only not pursue it, but actively suppress these sort mm-hmm. of uh, other... Mm-hmm. You know. And this gets you into the far right... Uh, which is because today the far right seems sort of like a joke, you know, I mean, intentional or not, they're just like people on Twitter who post cartoon frogs or whatever, you know, it doesn't seem, I mean, I think, uh, the far, like the Turner diaries, have you guys looked at the Turner diaries? I've never read them, but they come up in this book a lot. So the Turner diaries, I guess, came out in the late seventies and it's just like this grotesque, uh, call to arms that what the Jews are taking have taken over the country and replacing us with degenerate races and whatnot. And so it's like we have to take up arms and overthrow uh, the government. And so Timothy McVeigh was really into this, um, this network. And it sounds like he went to gun shows and whatnot. Uh, so... Yeah, and, and and then there's the issue of lines being crossed between intelligence agencies and the far right. To what extent were they involved as agents? To what extent were they paid? And so this book, the book is interesting because it raises up all these speculations without definitively saying which one is right or not, right? 
who was involved with who. Um, and then there's this issue. Do you know this guy? I guess his name was Jolly West. He was so Lewis Jolly Joyland Joyland West was this psychiatrist who was uh, involved in MK Ultra and mind control and whatnot, and was. Uh, he was like peripherally involved even with the OKC. So he's always showing up with crazy people. Like he, uh, after um, Jack Ruby, right? After Lee Harvey Oswald was killed, he uh, interviewed the guy who killed him. So it does raise issues of whether there's this vast mind control thing going on right underneath the surface right and um, i mean there's a lot you know th- about mk ultra that we don't know i mean what we do know um is is limited mm-hmm. I can't, a lot of it came out during the church committee hearings in the 70s but uh you know they also withheld a lot of evidence and kind of tried to make it seem that the scope of the program was more limited than it was so um, and we know that they did a lot of crazy, you know, horrific um, experiments and um, that, you know, that's really only the tip of the iceberg. And, um, you know, there's Dave McGowan's uh, program to kill book talks about like uh, it, it inducing dissociative identity. Dis- right. So and how. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> So was at, so the most sensational way of reading this, I guess, would be that McVeigh was himself uh, brainwashed by MK Ultra. Yeah, and and the other thing to keep in mind is that the way these intelligence agencies and and networks and operations work is by keeping information extremely siloed. So someone involved in the operation you know mcveigh as an example may not understand the true scope of the operation what's actually happening they just know okay drive this truck from point a to point b wait there for so and so to show up and so it's not to say that he was necessarily like, oh, like like his mind was wiped and turned into a zombie by the government and they, they made him do this um, bombing. You know, it, it could be he was in some special forces unit and he knew he was involved with an operation, but he didn't know what it was um, or that he was going to be like the patsy or the fall guy. So there's all sorts of gradations here of what could have happened. McVeigh's degree of involvement. Right. You don't necessarily have to assume there was like any kind of chain of command between the CIA and McVeigh to think that there was something, uh, some monkey business going on here. Right. And so, I mean, and this period, it interests me too, because so the deep state founded like at the end of World War II was very, uh, I mean, it was very right wing at the time, right? It was anti-communist. Dulles was a, was a hardcore cold warrior, right? And so there was throughout the Cold War sort of an alliance between the homegrown far right and intelligence 
in the U.S., right? Fighting communists. There's some story about like the Klan actually went down to Nicaragua to fight the Sandinistas on themselves, like white supremacists in the U.S. just volunteered, like their version of like going to Spain to fight uh, fascism. Like, so during the 80s, so there, I think there is an alignment between like David Duke types and the CIA throughout the Cold War, right? And then at the end of the Cold War, that kind of gets frayed, right? And the deep state sort of becomes... Uh, at least on a superficial level, kind of progressive, which is what we're seeing now, right? But the the far right is still uh, anti-communist. So I'm wondering if maybe this was like McVeigh bombing the federal building is the uh, instance of that, right? Of like the far right and the deep state sort of falling out of love uh, in the sort of post-Cold War dispensation. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. It almost goes back to what we were talking about with your article where, um, you know, the the deep state, so to speak, um, I don't view it as really all that ideological. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the the ideological justification, you know, after the Cold War ended... Um, mm-hmm. it lost its value in terms of an ideological justification for the so-called or the deep state's agendas. And um, since that time, they have adopted the kind of progressive ideology as the justification for moving their various agendas. But at the end of the day, it's really still the same kind of coalition of uh, institutions um, controlling capital and the flow of capital that are are behind. So there's some argument to be made that like the CIA started the Cold War and without them, uh, we would have been able to navigate things without, I mean, like FDR reached an understanding with Stalin and whatnot. And then it was with his untimely death was blown up. And so we had this fanatical, right? What was that? What's that operation? Operation Paperclip where we, we, yeah, we brought over Nazis, brought over the Nazis and, and made so, them government officials. Right, 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 right. So, um, and there's the start of that book. It says Dulles was like trying to negotiate a separate peace with Hitler, despite FDR's policy, right? So basically, um, going against uh, the stated government policy, um, and that's, I mean, the deep state is interesting because it shows like the limits of elections, right, and what they can do. Like, no one voted to have third world governments overthrown uh, in the Cold War. It's just the CIA did that on its own, right? And so, and that's, and and then Eisenhower famously denounced the military industrial complex um, as sort of this limit on American democracy, really. Because if there's these people doing these things that aren't accountable, 
you can't really have that much democracy. Exactly. So, and, and, and that's where you get the idea of, you know, a, a so-called secret government. And, you know, it sounds very conspiratorial. Likely, yes. And uh, people say, talk, you all think you're so yeah. crazy for talking about that. But, um, you know, there's a long history of research in this area and um as you alluded to like there there actually have been at various points kind of grassroots or democratic pushback about these type of um you know regime change policies um so for example in the 70s people started finding out about this and um and were very angry and it even uh, reached Congress, amazingly, and they passed a law that um, defunded these CIA regime change black ops. And that's where you get into, like, mm-hmm. Iran-Contra, and, um, you know, there's, like, the superficial kind of story that's told about this of, like, oh, Reagan was dealing with Iran, and it was kind of shady. But, you know, what happened there was... CIA didn't have any money for these black ops, so they basically got into the arms dealing and drug dealing business. Um, and so you have like that was Iran Contra. Mm-hmm. They were selling mm-hmm. weapons to Iran, who was supposedly our mortal enemy, using the money from the arms deals to buy drugs from the Contras in Nicaragua. And then um, bringing them to the American inner cities and selling the drugs there. And, you know, that's like uh, Gary Webb, Dark Alliance. Um, so all this stuff is has a basis. In fact, it's really not this kind of conspiratorial speculation that... Um, you know, uh, we, that we take a lot of shit for as... Uh, right. You know. So, okay, so how does McVeigh... How does this all come together in McVeigh? I mean, what does he represent? Yeah, so does the book get into... I, I haven't read it. My uh, Q has read it, and my wife read it, um, and, and we discussed it. But um, does the book get into, like, American Gladio at all? No, it's mostly about MK Ultra and stuff like that. Okay. Well, um, basically, in my view the Oklahoma City city bombing functions as sort of a domestic Gladio operation. And what is American Gladio? I'm actually not familiar. So Operation Gladio refers to after World War II, the -hmm. CIA um, kind of working through NATO um, created a stay-behind kind of paramilitary um, groups in throughout Europe and um, they essentially used what's been called a strategy of tension to maintain control over Europe um, you know and keep the communists out of power by staging um, false flag terrorist attacks and blaming them on the political opposition the communists in this case and um gladio is actually Mm -hmm. refers specifically to the italian program but it's used as kind of a shorthand for this whole strategy of tension kind of 
operation keep the population constantly scared in fear um crisis after crisis so that the people will just turn to authority to keep the peace for stability and um essentially surrender a lot of their liberties and rights in exchange for security and you know strategy of tension it's a it's an accepted kind of um political tool um you know there's a wikipedia page on strategy of tension that kind of outlines all this and i think you can see a lot of the same kind of dynamics with events like the oklahoma city bombing so in this case they weren't trying to discredit communists it was actually the opposite where they were using the this kind of boogeyman of the far right um anti-government you know militia groups and whatnot as a, you know a, a real threat um and and now you see that kind of re-emerging with a lot of the trump chuds well let me ask you this though do you think I mean, so for me, reading this book, one thing that was interesting about it was uh, in the past few years, certainly since Trump was elected, like the idea of racism has just become so silly. Like everyone and their mother is a far right Nazi, you know, it's just like literally everyone. Right, right. Like, it's all one thing. Anti-vaxxer, anti-masker. No. Right, right, right. Or if you don't want to wear uh, a mask in a hundred degree heat outside like you're a white supremacist so it's just gotten so silly but reading this book made me think well you know some of these far-right people are legitimately kind of terrifying like the the militia people so do you think that there was is a homegrown militia movement that's like genuine or do you think that's all sort of fake and created by intelligence agencies or media narrative yeah it's a good question mm -hmm. and it's it's um it's not a straightforward answer but here's what i'll say is for one thing the intelligence agencies have always been mixed up in these kind of um counter government groups um just mm -hmm. it, it makes sense right i mean they, they want to keep tabs on it they want and if the the best way to do that is really to infiltrate the group and you know um in many cases it's actually at the leadership level and all the way down so yes there may be some organic um movement that emerges and says you know like oh why are we paying all these taxes so the government can, you know, wage these wars or whatever it is? And then the government will infiltrate them, perhaps even radicalize them, um, you know, get bait them into doing kind of violent or extreme, taking on extreme views. And, and again, also, you don't mm -hmm. this isn't only on the right. Right. Like they had this on the left, too, with like Black Panthers were heavily infiltrated, uh, you know, on all sides. The other thing is that um, while these groups, you know, are kind of designed and portrayed as being very scary in the media, 
they have literally zero right. institutional power um, in contrast with, you know, you know, so maybe some of these people are racist, but every government agency, every major corporation has an HR department with a DEI officer who's making sure that, you know, their racial equity and blah, blah, blah. So it's, um, it's made up to be this really scary kind of threat that could destroy democracy, et cetera. But it's just... Well, my only thought there is like maybe... Um, like we were talking about how underlying practices stay the same where ideological justifications change. And so I'm, I'm wondering if like maybe throughout the Cold War, the far right was more closely aligned with the interests of sort of the, the deep state bureaucracy and intelligence agencies. And then since there's since the nineties, basically the end of history period, um, there has been a schism and we're sort of living through, I mean, at this point it's, it's really hard to take seriously the idea that there's anything right wing about the deep state, you know, after living through Trump and just the ridiculous, uh, it just became so obvious that the deep state is progressive at this point. Like they, the just ideological justification for, and that's, so that's why that book, The Devil's Chessboard, who I can't remember the author's name, is kind of interesting, but because I know the author was very left wing, right? But also very against the deep state. And so has he tracked, like how many leftists have tracked that change and been like, wait a second, these people I was against are now adopting my ideology versus just going along with it and now being whatever, anti-Trump or whatever. Yeah, no, it's it's a trap that a lot of people fall in. Um, like me personally, I'm getting into it, unfortunately, on Twitter a lot with these kind of conspiracy left people who kind of... The conspiracy leftists? I haven't seen that. Okay. Well, like, would you consider like TrueAnon, like those people that podcast, like those maybe conspiracy leftists? Exactly. Okay, okay, okay. Sure, I know those people. And so they think they're still being oppositional when they're voicing voicing the the majority opinions. Yeah, it's a great. It's very common and a great observation. Um, I've noticed it's sort of like a a big boomer thing like i even have relatives in my family who are like super based on every type of foreign policy issue right like um they'll understand that the u.s did a coup in ukraine in 2014 and that's the backdrop to the war that's happening right now they'll understand the cia's history of doing regime change in guatemala and iran and on and on and uh, but they completely miss the mark with certain things, the ones that are more like liberal um, coded operations like COVID, where it's like a trust the science kind of biomedical thing. And they think you need to get vaxxed and wear the mask. Protect and... trans kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's I mean, that's interesting. I mean, like Noam Chomsky, who I still yeah, I mean, and I still admire Noam Chomsky in a way. I mean, 
my political consciousness was formed by reading him during the war on terror and be like, oh my God, look at all these terrible things the U.S. has done. Oh, for sure. And like manufacturing consent Absolutely. Is, is still an extremely relevant text. But he's totally, um, can I say this word, libtarded on every every like domestic issue. I mean, and, and every scientific issue. Right. It's like this anarcho-libertarian saying the unvaxxed should be put in camps or whatever. Right. Or like you can't, he, he, he likened like walking into a grocery store unmasked with like opening fire uh with an assault rifle and he's also completely uh like he's a climate doomer he thinks the world's going to end in five years based on some model so yeah i do think there's this interesting schism that's opened up like someone like noam chomsky and his many followers can't conceive that like scientific consensus can be manufactured as well right so it's just in foreign policy it's one thing, but then domestically, we all have to follow the science. And I do feel like, like when I was a teenager, Noam Chomsky was totally beyond the pale. Like he was denounced everywhere. Like everyone hated Noam Chomsky, but it feels like the establishment has sort of come around to, oh, he's all right. He's not so bad, you know? And so it does feel like things have shifted now to more sort of domestic psyops or Maybe just the justification has changed domestically, ideologically. Right, right. And I mean, he's an MIT guy. So there's the whole question of, is he controlled opposition? Um, I think, I mean, it's basically undeniable that he is functionally, whether um, he, uh, you know, is like explicitly like paid by the CIA or something. Um, But, you know, this is... um, the the intelligence agencies really have their tentacles in all every facet of media and culture um you know there's a history mm-hmm. of these um intelligence infiltration of right. music going back to the 60 popular music in the 60s and 70s and yeah another book uh I read a few years ago um, about the Manson. Do you know the book Chaos? Um, it's about the Manson um, family. Sorry, I'm muted. I said, is it Chaos? Yeah, Chaos. Right, right, right. Chaos. I've also, I've also read Chaos. Yeah, Chaos is like aberration light in the sense that it like, uh, it begins introducing some of that stuff into the, you know, it was a little more mainstream, but it definitely... Yeah, it had a mainstream publisher more so than... Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, you, can not, you cannot find Aberration like a random bookstore, but you can find Chaos in any random bookstore. Although I was amazed that the library had a copy of Aberration. Um, Great, good for Wendy. Um, so, but no, but I think it, it sort of follows a similar framework in that it sort of first establishes that the mainstream narrative was definitely wrong right so and that for me that's an easy pill to swallow i mean of course the mainstream narrative is going to be wrong but then it introduces you to like this world of shadows where how do you know what's right and you could go down some really freaky uh uh freaky places with with some of these speculations but I don't know. I mean, for me, the issue is just always what is, how do we, how can we possibly know 
what is true. And any positive theory that you're going to present as an alternative is almost certainly going to have holes in it as well, right? So is the truth just unknowable in the end? I'm not sure. Well, that is, you know, the question. And um, a lot of people who shut are opposed to so-called conspiracy theories will leverage that criticism against con so you know conspiracy theories um however i think it's sort of a, a <laughs> trick a misdirection um because first of all a lot of what is considered crazy beyond the pale conspiracy theories actually has a firm basis in fact and then it's just almost a a uh, lie by omission like this sort of secret history is just it's not included in the textbooks you don't see it on the news but it is documented and verifiable sure. yeah. um, now to your point some of the things that we're talking about are essentially unknowable and um that's like, for me, it's been a journey. I think it's a common journey that a lot of people go through where it's like, first you take the red pill. Um, oh, everything's fake. Then you take the black pill. Oh, everything's fake. And there's nothing we can do about it. Everything is unknowable and just dark void and why care? And then hopefully you come around to the white pill, right? And to me that actually involves a degree of acceptance of the idea that um you know you may not be able to know everything that's behind what we experience um you know as the public government etc but um it's a more so a process of learning to interpret and take in information and critically analyze it and um, consider who are the forces, the institutions behind these moves and what might be their motivations. And a lot of that comes back to, as I've talked about a lot on here, learning to decode propaganda and... Um, understand what the messages are because everything that we see in the media it's not an accident it's for a reason so just kind of trying to learn to interpret what what is the actual reason versus what is the stated reason what what facts are being emphasized what facts are being omitted um what supposed facts are not uh, based in reality sure. at all. Yeah. I mean, lots of, I mean, I guess like the bottom line is like many of these um, narratives, when you really start looking at them closely, there's just so much more to them. And that, that at least I think anyone who's not willing to admit that is really just keeping their head to, head in the sand, you know, regardless of if you want to go full conspiracy, it's like the second you these get any like closer inspection, there's clearly much more to the story, you know? Sure. And that's, well, do you guys know, so do you remember the Oliver Stone movie that came out in the early nineties, JFK? That was like, a, 
I've never seen it, but uh, it was it came out in the early '90s, and it was like alleging all kinds of things. Um, and it, it was this big to do, based based on a true story of a New right. Orleans prosecutor who um, attempted to bring a case um, in the conspiracy against uh, to to kill JFK. Right, and so so okay, so I'm going to reveal something about my. Family life. So my father, God bless him, was that movie came out and there was like this reaction to it of people being like, I can't believe Oliver Stone would make a hero out of this crackpot, blah, blah, blah. And so then there was a counter reaction of being like, well, actually, the Warren Commission was right. And um, my dad was very much like there's this book called Case Closed by Gerald Posner, which was just like came out a few, like a year or two after the JFK movie and was just making a case that the mainstream story was correct. And I remember like my father was a point of pride to him to read that book. So it was like in this house, we don't believe in conspiracy theories. So that was very much growing up that point of view. But I've actually talking to my dad about it lately and had to come out and be like, you know, I'm starting to wonder if that was actually correct. And he was actually open-minded to his credit. <laughs> But he was so but looking into that, one thing that really struck me as someone who's so critical of science, right, was that they had to produce this Nobel Prize winning physicist to make up some theory for how JFK's head could have snapped back like that, you know, from right. And so it was just like eminence based science. You just produce someone who has impressive credentials to lay out. This is how it happened, you know? And so then it's like, okay, smart people go along with that. So I feel like that trick was sort of perfected in the JFK um, in the JFK investigation, you know, conspiracy theorists. Because part of the sting of the term conspiracy theorist is it's like it's a low-class label, right? Like intellectually low-class people. Right, 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 right. And like... Smart people believe Nobel Prize winners. Um, and so... Well, and you know the history of how s- conspiracy theory came to be used. Well, that it, as, that it supposedly came... Well, the CIA used it, right? Right. To, to, yeah, the history of it being used as a kind of derogatory term to shut down speculation against questioning government narratives was from a CIA memo um, in, in the wake of the right. JFK assassination. So that's, I mean, so you just look at sort of the way American public life changed in the wake of the JFK assassination. Like it's just been fractured ever since, right? Because there's the, the mainstream and then there's the uh, conspiracy theorists and they're never, I don't know if we're ever going to get reconciled. Like can can is um is the narrative at this point just too fractured that it can ever be put back together again, or would that even be desirable? I don't know. Attention, thoughts and prayers, listeners. A portion of today's broadcast has been redacted by the powers that be. Uh, so the end of our show is a little, uh, interrupted here. Um, but just wanted to jump back in and, uh, 
and let you know that we got our Substack up now. It's thoughtsprayers.substack.com. So uh, you can go follow us there. Keep up to date with everything that we're doing. Um, it's a free subscription now. We, if you, uh, there is a, a paid option um, for the. If you just, you know, support what we're doing, we really appreciate it. Um, we don't have any any content paywalled right now, uh, but yeah, we appreciate any support. Um, you know, if 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 you all like what we're doing. So uh, I don't know what happened. The deep state didn't want you to hear whatever we were talking about. So uh, yeah, we'll, we we love you all, and uh, we'll, we'll catch you next time. Big shout out to David M. and check out his new piece on lobotomies at Compact Mag. Peace.